The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode series, our goal is to fully equip ourselves with a complete historical and cultural understanding of Jesus' I Am statements as revealed within God's Word, the Bible. While the subject matter may not be completely new ground, I have an abiding faith that any time we approach God's Word with a sincere and earnest desire to learn, we cannot help and will not fail to deepen a greater understanding and appreciation of God's nature and deity from a diligent Berean study of His Word, the Bible. In the previous two episodes, we began a journey to deepen our understanding of Jesus' I Am statements found within the New Testament. It is my contention that these various statements, when viewed properly, clearly draw a straight line identifying Jesus' divinity and recognition as the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, the Lord of life, and the King of kings. 
In episodes 1 and 2, we completed a search of Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, along with a survey of the Old Testament in Hebrew, as well as the Septuagint Greek regarding God's revelation to Moses, and by extension to his people, of God's character or name. Uh, to be forthcoming and to anticipate a possible complaint by some, I am aware of the issue of several Hebrew words, particularly God's divine quote-unquote name, which were eventually translated into Aramaic. These Bible verses containing God's quote-unquote name were then translated back into more modern or equivalent Hebrew words. This is particularly the case with regard to the Hebrew word Anihu, which is used in several places in Isaiah. Further, many scholars gravitate to these Isaiah passages since it is clear that Isaiah uses Anihu exclusively as the equivalent of the Greek ego aime and the Hebrew word Yahweh, or God's quote-unquote name. These scholars then make the case that John's use of ego aime as being synonymous with God's quote-unquote name is based upon the linguistics and or the fact that the structure of the Isaiah verses closely parallels John's verses and that John is perhaps drawing upon Isaiah. Lastly, these scholars then tend to dismiss Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 through 15 for all the reasons mentioned earlier in place of the Isaiah connection. I would prefer to say that, if anything, the Isaiah connection is in fact an additional connection and not a replacement or elimination of Exodus. However, for the sake of preventing us going any further into a maze of linguistic translation weeds, I have chosen to forego the details of these particular arguments and let the study thus far stand on its own. As we move forward into the New Testament, we should know that two of the Greek words which we have already discussed from the Septuagint are subsequently used in the New Testament. The Greek words in question are hoan and ego aime. You may recall that both of these words are used in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 and other places. Each is understood to either describe the proper pronoun name of God or to more accurately be a description of God's character being eternal, literally, quote, I am, I exist, the being one, the one who exists, the one who is, the becoming one, or he who is, unquote. Before we continue, I believe it will be instructive to look at where and how the words, quote, hoan and ego aime, unquote, are used in the New Testament. Looking at the Greek phrase hoan, unquote, we find the following verses containing this phrase. John chapter 1, verse 18, quote, no man has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, unquote. In this case, the phrase, quote, hoan, unquote, is translated with the English words, quote, which is, unquote. If we translated John 1.18 in keeping with what we already know of hoan, we could paraphrase this verse as follows, quote, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, the one who exists, the one who is, the being one of the Father, he hath declared him, unquote. One can immediately see how the use of hoan here and in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 are both in keeping with the character of God and with the theology of the Trinity. Next, we have John 3, chapter 3, verse 13, quote, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, unquote. Here, the phrase ho'an is translated again with the English words, quote, which is, unquote. Again, if we maintain the same meaning of ho'an, the meaning is that the Son of Man, quote, the being one, the one who is, or the one who exists, unquote, is the one who is in heaven. Next we have John chapter 6, verse 46, quote, Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father, unquote. In this verse, the phrase ho'an is translated as, quote, which is, unquote. Consequently, the meaning is that no one has seen the Father except Jesus, who is the one who exists, the one who is, the, one, the being one. This is logically the case because Jesus is God. Next, we have Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, quote, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, unquote. In this verse, the phrase ho'an is translated, quote, him which is, unquote. Here, it is undisputed that Jesus is referring to himself as the one who exists forever and therefore God. Finally, we have Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, which says, quote, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty, unquote. Here again, we see in context that it is Jesus who is speaking to the seven churches and saying that he is the beginning and the end and the one which is, translated from ho'an, and the one who is the Almighty, i.e. God. So, finally, here in episode three, we at last come to the New Testament 
and the long-awaited coming of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, in specific from a discerned revelation of God's word, Scripture makes it clear that the Messiah would in fact be God among us as the name Emmanuel means. Oftentimes, one of the claims or complaints made by many is that Jesus of Nazareth never clearly identified himself as God. Whereas it is not clear what more Jesus could have said or done in order to satisfy those making these complaints, what is clear is that when understood correctly, Jesus did, in fact, repeatedly make it abundantly clear that he was God in the flesh. This is particularly true when one takes into consideration the totality of the context in question. This brings us to this study which provides uh, examples and evidence which understood properly make it very evident that Jesus made numerous statements along with his actions which clearly identify him as being God. In this case, the statements in question by Jesus specifically focus on his usage of the Greek words I go, I may, in various passages. By reminder, ego I may is translated typically in one of three ways. Number one, in the first case, I go I may is translated as simple self-identification. For example, I might ask, are you the one who baked the cookies? If so, I would then answer, quote, I am, unquote. In this case, I'm not making any re a reference or allusion to my being God or deity. As stated, I am simply providing specific self-identification of my involvement with some issue, as in this case, I'm the one who baked the cookies. Two, in the second case, the one who is doing this self-identification is God. Depending on context and circumstances, the quote, I am, unquote, could simply be God making simple self-identification, or it could be an example where, quote, I am, unquote, is an invocation of God's divine, quote, unquote, name, or better stated, his eternal nature and character in keeping with our study of Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Number three, lastly, ego I may is translated and placed into context with the subject of the sentence and surrounding circumstances, which in their totality narrow the meaning to revealing God's nature and character as the one who, quote, exists from all eternity, irrespective of time, unquote. In the case of the second and third instances, it is not uncommon to see the translators capitalize the English, quote, I am, unquote, because they in fact recognize that the language, grammar, and context require this. By disclaimer, there are places in the New Testament where the context makes it clear that ego I may is to be translated as in the first and second example. What we want to identify and study are any examples where Jesus is using the words ego I may in context 
where he is clearly referring to himself and linking himself synonymously as the God of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, and indeed as the God of all Scripture. At this point, then, our goal is to identify and adopt hermeneutical, exegetical, contextual, and grammatical benchmark guidelines, which we can then apply to any prospective verses to identify such instances. With this in mind, let me propose the following guidelines for our search. Number one, the first benchmark guideline is the grammatical structure of the phrase in which ego I may appears. In this benchmark, scholars agree and also differ as to the presence or absence of a predicate nominative in the sentence where the words ego I may appear. As a reminder, a predicate nominative is a specific kind of word or words found in a sentence. For example, quote, I am the best man, unquote. In this case, the words, quote, best man are the predicate nominative because these two words redefine and clarify what, quote, I am, unquote, refers to or is. Consequently, some scholars argue that only verses where Jesus uses the words, quote, I am, unquote, and where a predicate nominative exists qualify as making that, quote, I am, unquote, as being an expression where Jesus is in fact identifying himself as very God. Other scholars argue sentences with, quote, I am, unquote, without a predicate nominative qualify if there are other extenuating factors which apply. For the purposes of our study, grammatical structure will be one consideration, but will not be exclusive to the totality of the remaining benchmark guidelines. Two. The second benchmark guideline is the context in which the phrase, I go, I may, is used. As with all scripture, interpretation context is everything. We start with the context of the immediate word, then move to the sentence, the verse, the chapter, the book, and eventually the totality of scripture. In this case, context can mean many things, including the surrounding circumstances of the statement. Who is involved and or talking to Jesus? Where and when is the discussion taking place? Why is Jesus saying what he is saying? Number three. The third benchmark guideline is the historic examples and types embedded or explicit in the narrative where ego I may appears. Whenever and wherever the phrase ego I may appears, we must look at the various hermeneutical considerations such as culture, genre, historical allusions, as well as any references to types and shadows to be found elsewhere in Scripture, which bear relevance to the statement of uh, Jesus saying, I am. Number four, 
The fourth benchmark guideline is the reaction by those listening to Jesus where he uses the phrase, I go, I may. Wherever and whenever Jesus utters the words, I go, I may, we need to pay attention to the written accounts available which attest to the reaction of those listening who heard Jesus make his statements. The reaction of any crowd to information which they receive will portray how those witnesses who were listening understood the meaning of what the speaker is saying. By extension, these reactions can and will help current readers of these sayings and events to put these statements into a more accurate context of their actual meaning. With this being said, our goal is to survey the New Testament, locate any statement by Jesus wherein he uses the words, I go, I may, and apply these four benchmark guidelines to determine what a study of these statements then reveal. We begin our study of Jesus' I am statements with the harmonized accounts of Matthew chapter 26, verse 59 through 66, Mark chapter 14, verse 60 through 64, and Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. In these accounts, Jesus has already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and has been taken before the high priest for trial. The summary of the Gospel accounts reads this way. First, we have Matthew chapter 26. Beginning at verse 59, we read, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Verse 60, But found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. Verse 61, And said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Verse 62. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Verse 63. But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Verse 65, then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. Verse 66, What thank ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Next, we move to the harmonized account of Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 60 through to 64. Quote, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Verse 61. 
but he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Verse 62, And Jesus said, I am, ego I may, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Verse 63, Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Verse 64, Ye have heard the blasphemy, what thank ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Finally, we have Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. Verse 66, And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Verse 67, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. Verse 68, And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Verse 69, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of, of the power of God. Verse 70, Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am, ego I may. Verse 71, And they said, What need we further witness? We ourselves have heard his own mouth. So, now as we proceed to harmonize and summarize the three gospel writers regarding Jesus' statements, we find the following. Jesus is on trial being accused of, by various false witnesses in an effort to obtain information and evidence in order to falsely accuse him for crimes which will allow the chief priest to sentence Jesus to death. The chief priests are getting frustrated since Jesus is remaining silent in order to fulfill prophecy. When all else fails, Matthew tells us in verse 63 that the high priest says to Jesus, quote, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God, unquote. Mark tells us in verse 61 that the high priest asked Jesus, quote, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Unquote. From these two accounts, we learn three very important things regarding this question. Number one, the high priest uses the phrase, quote, I adjure thee by the living God, unquote, to Jesus. This phrase is the equivalent of placing a person under an oath, under penalty of perjury. Further, Jewish law would require that persons given this order would have to answer and answer truthfully. In other words, Jesus could no longer legally be silent. He would have to answer, and he would have to answer truthfully as to his identity. 2. The high priest asked Jesus if he is the Christ, the original language says that the priest is asking Jesus if Jesus is the, quote, anointed, unquote, the Messiah. The Messiah being a specific title of the person God had promised since Genesis 3 as their long-awaited Savior. 
The Jews had been waiting about 4,000 years thus far for the Messiah who would usher in his kingdom. Finally, three, the high priest asked Jesus if he is the, quote, Son of God in Matthew and Luke, and the, quote, Son of the Blessed, unquote, in Mark. Both questions are actually identical. Quote, the Blessed, unquote, or, quote, the Blessed One, unquote, are both Jewish idioms, which are only applied to Yahweh or God. Even today, Jews use these two terms to refer to God, since no Orthodox Jew wants to use the word Yahweh, Jehovah, or Elohim, since they might inadvertently mispronounce God's name. Likewise, even today, Orthodox Jews will not place the vowel, O, in between the G and the D in the word God. They will instead place an underline where the O should go for the same reason. In any case, the term, quote, Son of God, unquote, as used by any Jew of this time frame, would simply be another name for Messiah. So in all three cases, the high priest is asking Jesus the same question, quote, I adjure thee, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Unquote. In response, Jesus gives three distinct pieces of information, each of which clarifies and answers the high priest's question. Number one, Jesus says, quote, I am, unquote, I go, I may. Two, Jesus says, Hereafter shall ye see, quote, the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, unquote. And three, Jesus says, and, quote, coming in the clouds of glory, unquote. Now, the first answer where Jesus says, quote, I am, unquote, or ego I may, specifically answers the high priest's question and confirms that Jesus is indeed, quote, the Christ, unquote, or, quote, the Messiah, unquote, or, quote, Son of God, unquote, or, quote, the Son of the Blessed, unquote. So on this basis alone, Jesus is clearly confirming under oath that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. However, Ego I May goes far beyond answering the question posed to give even a greater revelation. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Yes, I'm the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed. Not only that, but, quote, I am, unquote, Yahweh, Jehovah, the one from the burning bush, the ever-existing one, Hoan, Anihu, God of very God. If this isn't enough, Jesus goes on to add even more, saying that the high priest and others would see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. Here, Jesus reveals and confirms three things. One, Jesus confirms that he is the Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man is a messianic title confirming himself as the Messiah, also called the, quote, Ancient of Days, unquote, from Daniel 7, who will claim his role in the redemption of the world 
and will establish an everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom over all the peoples, nations, and languages. 2. Jesus uses the phrase, quote, sitting on the right hand of power, unquote. This phrase comes primarily from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. In Jewish culture, a person of high rank would put someone on his right hand, giving that person equal honor with himself and recognizing them as possessing equal dignity and authority. Scriptural examples of this include Genesis chapter 48, verse 13 and 14, where Jacob chooses Manassas over Ephraim, as well as Psalm 110.1, quote, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool, unquote. Also Psalm 118, verse 16, quote, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly, unquote. Number three, Jesus uses the phrase, quote, coming in the clouds of glory, unquote. To the Jewish mind, clouds of glory would be associated ultimately with the presence or the glory of God. Examples would be the pillar of cloud in the wilderness, the clouds which surrounded Mount Sinai where God was present, the cloud which surrounded the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple. Both 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 12 and 2 Chronicles chapter 6 verse 1 talk about Solomon de- dedicating the temple saying, quote, "The Lord has chosen to abide in a thick cloud." Unquote. So once again, Jesus is saying that he will be seen, quote, "coming in the clouds of glory." is a clear allusion to him being God. Finally, we have the reaction of the high priest. In both Matthew and Mark, we are told that upon hearing Jesus' reply, the high priest, quote, rent his clothes, unquote. Now, historically speaking, in Jewish culture, there are only two events which precipitate a Jew tearing their clothing. The first is when a friend, relative, spouse, or someone else close dies. In these circumstances, a Jew will tear a piece of cloth or their clothing in order to demonstrate their deep emotional distress. The second occasion is during Jewish legal trials. When a rabbinic judge has proven charges of blasphemy, the judge or judges would, according to the rules, stand to their feet and tear or rend their clothing. The word clothes, in plural, is sometimes used because the judge would have to tear each layer of clothing, even if there were ten layers, and they would not sew them up later. Now, another issue is that, according to Exodus chapter 28, verses 31 and 32, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 6, and chapter 21, verse 10, Jewish priests, and particularly the high priest, were forbidden from tearing their clothes, even if there was a death. 
They were in fact forbidden from tearing their clothes under any circumstances because the priest's robes were a symbol of their right of priestly office under God as well as God's holiness and glory. We would have to conclude then that the high priest in this case tore his clothes because he was acting as a judge presiding over Jesus' trial and tore his clothes as an indication of passing judgment of blasphemy against Jesus. In this case, the high priest pronounced the judgment of blasphemy because Jesus was clearly equating himself equal to God or as being God by using God's quote-unquote name, ego I may, and or by the various messianic titles. The problem for the high priest is, here is that in his excitement to show his personal and judicial abhorrence to blasphemy, the high priest himself violated the law and legally disqualified himself under Jewish law from continuing in office as high priest. The interesting, subtle, and yet profound detail is that while the earthly high priest, the mediator between God and man, had barred himself from being able to function as priest, there before him stood the true high priest wearing his clothes which were not torn. John later records these clothes were not torn because they were taken from Jesus in chapter 19 verse 24 of John where the Romans then cast lots for Jesus's clothes in order to prevent tearing them. Thus Jesus maintains his priestly rights forever while Caiaphas tears his and by doing so effectively transfers his office to Jesus forever. This concludes this episode Please join me for part four. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The world falls around